No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. A superfan desperately wants to connect with the wonderful wizard of YouTube, Todrick Hall, in Ariel Mahler's story, Under the Rainbow, Over the Sea, read for us here by Molly Tauger. Under the Rainbow... Over the sea. Oh my god, oh my god, there he is. Todrick Hall has just come out from behind the curtain for the after show meet and greet, and he is gorgeous. He's right there, he's literally a few feet away. That's really him. And he's shorter than I imagined, but that's okay. And oh my god, he's so much more beautiful in real life. I catch myself looking around meekly. Okay, stay cool, breathe. I must look ridiculous. Is this how the Little Mermaid felt when she first laid eyes on Prince Eric? I've never seen a human this close before. He's very handsome, isn't he? These days, all pop stars have their crew of die-hard fans. Gaga has her little monsters, Bieber's got believers, Beyonce has her beehive, and as for me, I am a toddler, and we don't play. So... There I am, a 20-something toddler, standing in a line of middle school girls in blue and white checked Dorothy print dresses, ruby red sequin sneakers, wicked witch green face paint, and all manners of lion and tigers and bears, oh my. Different though we may be, we're all in line for the same reason, to see the wonderful wizard of YouTube, Todrick Hall. Are you noticing a theme here? Todrick's latest show, Straight Out of Oz, is an autobiographical concert musical in which Todrick uses the story and characters of The Wizard of Oz as a metaphor to tell the story of his own life as a gay black man from Texas. And I've seen it now four times, but there's nothing like your first time. I've been a toddler for several years. I can probably quote at least five of his YouTube videos word for word, but I didn't cross into superfan status until I saw Straight Out of Oz. I had no idea the kind of impact this show was having on me. I was blown away. So when right after the curtain call, Todrick addressed the audience saying, I can't say much about this yet, but New York, after this tour ends, I am going to be moving in right here in the Big Apple to work on something very exciting. What? He's moving to New York? This is my chance. Do you think? Oh my God, maybe we could work together on something. Maybe he'd guest star in the web series I'm directing. And that's not all, he continues. I love New York so much that I am going to take a photo with every person who buys one of my posters here tonight. Oh shucks. I bet he says that to all the major metropolitan areas. <laughs> so, as I stand there now in line to meet him, my heart is racing and my mind is running and there's three people in front of me, two people, one, and then it's my turn. Todrick! I managed to blurt out, I just want to say how much of an inspiration you are to me. What's your name, he asks. Oh my god, he asked my name. I bet he doesn't ask everyone their name. He must really think I'm like, cool or something. <laughs> I'm Ariel, I said, like the mermaid. See? I even have a little mermaid watch. And as I hold out my wrist to show him, I feel like I'm bearing a piece of my soul. I love it, he says. 
As we turn to the camera, I feel him place his warm and beautiful hand on my chest, right where my heart was before he melted it with a smile. (laughs) I want to bathe in this moment forever. Nothing else matters. It's just me and Todrick and a flash. And before I know it, it's over. I'm walking away from him, and he's greeting the next eager fan in line. Wait, that was it? No, there was so much more I needed to say. I watch in slow motion as my feet parade away from him, unable to stay, unwilling to go. Maybe I could run back and, I don't know, say something else? I could give him my number, maybe, and he'd call me later tonight, and we'd chat, shoot the breeze a little, and I could tell him all the things I wanted to say. I tell him the story of my little mermaid watch, how I got it as an affirmation of my true name, my true identity, Ariel. My male birth name had never worked for me. I never really felt like a man, and Ariel just fits so much better. Not only was there the Little Mermaid connection, but it also references one of the original genderless literary pioneers, Ariel from Shakespeare's The Tempest. When I saw that watch in all of its cheap and tacky $10 Target glory, I knew that I had to buy it. The watch would be my own private reminder of who I am and the journey ahead. If only I'd had the time to tell all this to Todrick. Maybe we would have understood me better. Or maybe I should have emphasized how much of an influence he'd been on my life. I wanted him to know. I needed him to know. But now it was too late. Well, I knew that he would be in Philly next weekend. So, of course, I bought another ticket. I had to see him again. But beyond that, I needed him to see me. Not just as another anonymous toddler, but as the complex and layered person that I am. Didn't he get it? I was different. I really understood him. We had so much to connect about. I had to find a way to impress him. I had one week to figure out how. What did I know about Todrick Hall? How could I stand out from the crowd? Well, one thing I know for sure is that he absolutely loves the Wizard of Oz. Straight Out of Oz was, after all, an homage to his favorite childhood story. And I can definitely relate. My fantasy land wasn't over the rainbow, though. Mine was under the sea. I watched Disney's The Little Mermaid probably every day of my life from age five to about, well, I watched it a lot. In fact, some of my earliest childhood memories are of me dancing around the playroom and singing, part of your world. The playroom was painted a bluish green, perfect for my elaborate imagination to create Ariel's underwater kingdom. I used to wrap a towel around my waist. That was my tail. And I would sashay and chante around the room, flipping my fins and jumping and dancing. There were a few parts of the movie I could never watch. Ursula the Sea Witch. Every time she came on screen, I ran out of the room crying and had to wait for my mom or dad to tell me, it's okay, she's gone. It got so bad that I used to make my parents buy copies of the Little Mermaid picture books just so I could deliberately go through page by page and rip out all the pictures of Ursula that appeared in there as though it was my personal mission to rid the world of Ursula one book at a time. (laughs) But Ursula aside, I loved absolutely everything about that movie. And looking back on it now, it's not hard to see why. I identified with Ariel. I saw myself in her. As mermaid Ariel rescued snarflats and dinglehoppers from wrecked ships, (laughs) real-life Ariel pilfered Barbie shoes and floral scrunchies from their best friend's house. As mermaid Ariel ditched her father's concert to adventure with her friends, real-life Ariel gave up karate and soccer to pursue music and theater. 
As mermaid Ariel longed to be a part of the human world above, real life Ariel knew that they could never be a part of the world that they most saw themselves in. Because it's undeniable. The Little Mermaid is practically begging to be remade into a trans fairy tale. <laughs> Young mermaid assigned at birth strongly identifies with the human world and sees herself as a human despite her community telling her she's a mermaid. <laughs> she defies her family's expectations, undergoing a process of transition through which she's able to fully live out her human existence and be a complete person. Sound familiar? I thought... I should tell Todrick about these comparisons. How uncanny was this? He saw himself in the story of the Wizard of Oz. I saw myself in the Little Mermaid. That connected us for sure. So I wrote him a long and poetic letter, laying out these semi-parallel journeys and expressing to him how similar we really were. But that wasn't enough. Any poor, unfortunate soul can write a letter. I had to do more. I noticed that in many of Todrick's videos, he wore a baseball cap engraved with a three-digit number, which, just enough internet stalking later, I came to realize represents <coughs> the area codes of various cities he's lived in. 806 for Plainview, Texas, 310 for Los Angeles, 714 for Anaheim, etc. So what did I do? I ran down to that same Target where I bought the watch. This time I bought a solid black baseball cap and a carton of hundreds of silver plastic rhinestones pulled out the trusty glue gun, and painstakingly bejeweled a sparkling 212 right on the cap. I figured, he's moving to New York, right? This will be his welcoming gift. <laughs> I tucked the letter into the inner seams of the cap, and I brought it with me, along with the poster I'd bought in New York, down to Philly. Just like last time, I wait in line, maybe even more nervous than before if that was possible. Is this how Mermaid Ariel felt when she was on her way to meet Ursula for the first time? Could this be the moment that changes my life forever? Three people in front of me, two people, one, and then it's my turn. I stumble up to Todrick, and I'm on a mission. I don't have much time. I swear he recognizes me from last time. Good to see you, he exclaims. You wouldn't say good to see you unless you remembered someone, right? <laughs> Hi, Todrick. Um, I have something for you. I hold out the hat. He takes it. I wanted to make you a, um, there were so many versions of what I was going to say bouncing around in my brain that my mouth couldn't figure out which to pick. It's, um, congratulations or welcome to New York. I trail off. I feel a hot flush explode in my cheeks. I feel like the little mermaid right when she's about to finally kiss Eric, but the sun sets a moment too soon. Ursula's terrifying voice floods my ears. You're too late! <laughs> we pose for the photo. Something about the way Tadrick holds my hat up during the photo has a rehearsed feel to it. How many, how many fan gifts does he get in a night? My question is answered as I watch him toss the hat into a large plastic trash bag, presumably filled with all of his other fan-made presents. I hadn't noticed that detail last time. I see it fall in slow motion, and with it, all of my dreams of a happily ever after that would never be. Well, this is anticlimactic. <laughs> they say you should never meet your heroes. I'm starting to understand why. Turns out when you pull back the curtain, the man standing behind is nothing more than a, well, to steal from the scarecrow, a humbug. 
When telling the story of his life, Todrick makes it look so easy, so magical. It's a musical, after all. He doesn't paint his life as completely void of obstacles, quite the contrary, but as perseverance. When faced with challenges, Todrick never backed down. He always seemed to have that, I don't give it, attitude, propelling him to defy gravity, no matter the consequences. I'm sure that to Todrick, his story is still ongoing. But to me, the version of his life that I see is whole. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. He's been able to curate the exact version of that story that he wants to tell. Straight Out of Oz literally ends with Todrick singing, I'm coming home, as he clicks his heels three times. Meanwhile, I'm still lost under the sea. I'm trying to find my legs. Glinda has told me to follow the yellow brick road, but now I can't even seem to find it. Walking on my own two feet is harder than I thought it'd be. Are the flying monkeys really as dangerous as everyone says? And how am I supposed to communicate when the sea witch still has my voice? Am I mixing metaphors too much? <laughs> Welcome to my life. It's great to have idols, people we look up to, stars who we admire, but there's an important difference between admiration and projection. I can't live my life through Todrick Hall's journey. I'm on a journey of my own, and the only way for me to get home, wherever that may be, is to take my own path there. The only power Todrick Hall ever had over me was the power I gave him. And the only power I have is the power I give myself. Switching it up, when Molly Tauger spends the summer as an intern at a local newspaper, she has to figure out which words to use and when to use them. Here's Molly's story, and in local news, read by Ariel Mahler. And in local news, I stare at the yellow cursor on the black screen. It blinks. I type a few words. I delete. I type. I delete. I hold my breath until my eyes go fuzzy. The cursor blinks. I get up and go to the break room. The break room has no windows. It's a supply closet yellowed from a decade of legally confined smoke. It has a kitchen counter with a coffee machine, but no sink. Water has to be fetched from the bathroom. I pour myself a cup of Folgers in a mug that says, Happy Holidays! <laughs> I light a cigarette and blink through the haze. I'm supposed to be writing a South Shore Living feature about a field day for kids and local cops, but the static in my brain keeps the words from coming out. The static stems from starvation. Twelve hours ago, I ate half a croissant. The other half is in a Dunkin' Donuts bag, surrounded by ten other bags on the floor of my parents' Honda Civic. The Civic sits alone in the parking lot since it's 9 p.m., and most of the Patriot Ledger's staff have gone home. I'm a day reporter, or more precisely, a day reporting intern. Sometimes I go to the town hall and interview the clerk. Sometimes I go to the police station and read the crime blotter. Always I wish I were someplace else. I wish this in a brown carpeted boardroom while interviewing a selectman about a new stop sign. I hold my breath and will myself to pass out until he asks if I'm okay. <laughs> Sometimes, between interviews, I drive to the cemetery, put my toes in the grass, and wish I were spending the summer of 1995 making burritos in Ithaca. This is not something I wish actively. 
I'm a college junior who doesn't know that one can pursue one's wishes, especially when it comes to burritos. What I do think is I'm not the person who should be doing this job. I think this to the point where I keep trying to throw myself down the newsroom's back stairwell because a broken leg would be preferable to the discovery of how unqualified I am for this position. Except that technically I am qualified. During the year, I work for the Cornell Daily Sun. I spend five nights a week writing about student sit-ins and campusy policy changes. My internship application includes a profile I did of an alum whose husband was abducted by Guatemalan death squads. I've earned this job. But the earning is incidental. I keep going back to the sun because it's the one place I feel comfortable in a college where I don't fit. While Cornell's New York rich kids are nothing like the sharp-tongued Boston Irish I'd longed to escape, who in elementary school called me a Doberman and in high school goaded me to save the whales. They're not my people. They worship J. Crew and nimbly balance 15 credits with binge drinking. I had survived high school believing that college would be like the Blind Melon video, where the B-girl dances into the arms of her B-2-2 tribe. <laughs> Feeling again like an outsider is devastating. Since I don't know what I've done to cause this recurrence, I respond by submerging my personality as much as possible. I'm constantly on alert to adjust errant behavior. I am anxious, exhausted, and lonely. My parents, sensing my unhappiness, recommend in our weekly phone call that I join some kind of club. <laughs> Having no better idea and an inkling that I like writing, I join The Sun. I'm immediately smitten with the paper's opinionated oddballs, the shrieks and one-liners bouncing across the newsroom, the sharing of sheet pizza. The price of acceptance is showing up and being able to write. I'm not required to reveal much personality, and this makes me relax. But in truth, I hate the reporting cold calling, approaching strangers, putting my interpretation of events in print for the whole campus to see, tweak all of my anxiety sensors. But I bury these feelings. They're a small price to pay for having a, son, uh, for having a home. Like the sun, applying for the internship is my parents' idea. I think, how much real reporting can they make an intern do? Yeah. By Friday of the first week, the answer is clear. As I'm about to head home for the weekend, my editor tells me I need to drive to Cape Cod. A guy from our reading area has been in a fishing accident where his waders filled with water and dragged him under for so long he's now brain dead. His loved ones are waiting for him to die. I have to ask the family if they want to make a statement. I drive the two hours to the hospital biting my nails, holding my breath and practicing what I'll say over and over again so that by the time I get to the hospital, I'm only a vessel delivering a message. I've been sent here by the Patriot Ledge. They're running a story about the accident. Would the family like to make a statement? As I say this, I will my face to blur so the nurse will retain no visual of this person who has arrived to stick her nose into strangers' acute grief. While she goes to ask the family, I'm alone in the lobby. It's wood paneled with a painting of Martha's Vineyard and an oversized wall clock that ticks loudly. The size of the clock seems cruel. The nurse returns. The family doesn't want to talk. I mutter a thank you and drive away as fast as I can. It's a half an hour before I remember to roll down the windows. It's July and the Civic has no air conditioning. My stress sweat evaporates into the screaming night air.
By Monday morning, I feel prickly and numb. I stop at the Dunkin' Donuts for a croissant, but my stomach threatens revolt. I drink a coffee and smoke one of the cigarettes I'm hiding from my parents. When I arrive, my editors tell me that for the rest of the summer, six more weeks, my beat will be to cover my hometown. I respond by ceasing to eat. I cover a school committee meeting. A black principal is being questioned for her unorthodox methods, having kids chant self-affirmations like, I'm great! A group of white parents want the principal removed. The PTA board is accusing them of racism. Standing at the back of the room, a blonde with icy blue eyes wearing a green polo sweater gestures at the PTA board and whispers, Here's the deal. It's like, those guys were nerds in high school, and now they have power. They know the principal sucks. It has nothing to do with her being black. They just don't want the popular crowd to win. <laughs> I go to a town planning meeting where residents are protesting a new parking lot. A man with a red face and a sweatshirt that proclaims support for Pop Warner football pauses mid-rant to jab a finger in my direction. You better quote what I said. You guys never get it right. After this, I drive back to the office. I stare at my notes until my eyes unfocus. I make a list of follow-up questions, half-dial numbers, and hang up. A call comes in. It's a man who identifies himself as a member of the town meeting, a democratic relic that votes on the town budget. The man, Tom Connor, is angry. I quoted the superintendent instead of another town official in a story about a playground dedication. I recognize your last name, and I know who your parents are. I've never met Tom Connor, but I picture a shady figure in a trench coat and docksiders handing out my yearbook picture at the town meeting with the words, Don't trust her, scrawled across my face. When I hang up, I go to the back stairwell. Then I try to will myself to fall. I sink to my knees, tip sideways, and manage to roll a few steps. I lie for several minutes with my head against the metal railing and realize without joy that I'm not yet ready to really hurt myself. I wonder when I will be. Each day, I eat half a croissant. I drop from 120 pounds to 110. I hear myself ask interview questions and watch my subjects answer. I aim for accurate and bland. I type, residents are angry, and delete. I type, tensions ran high, and delete. I type, basically, we disagree on whether more parking is strictly necessary, said Kevin Foley of Butler Street. <laughs> I rarely see daylight except from my car and the windows of town government buildings. I can only breathe in the Civic, the intense heat and highway wind quieting my brain, until I pull into the Patriot, Lodgers, Patriot Ledger's parking lot. Then I smoke and type and go to the break room. Each day it takes 12 hours to write a 500 word piece. Two weeks into the town beat, I'm weeping in the fetal position on my parents' couch. They're trying to convince me to calm down. How bad can it be? I'm not covering a war. I sob and drip snot on the cushions. I can't explain myself. I tell them, it's just that it sucks. I suck. Everything sucks. It's only for the summer. Five more weeks. I tell them I can't make it. It will kill me. They find me a therapist. The therapist's name is Dr. Helper. Her name is really Dr. Helper. 
I call in sick on Monday and drive myself to Dr. Helper's office, which is in the basement of her house, an hour from my parents. She clucks softly as I cry and then tells me in soft, pedantic tones that she's sorry I'm in pain and that she believes I'm depressed. No shit, I think. Though, in reality, I have no idea what this means or that this is a chronic diagnosis. I, I receive a prescription for Ativan to take the edge off and Zoloft that will even me out in a few weeks. I drive back to my parents and take the Ativan. I sit on the couch, feeling my limbs turn to dead weight. The skin prickles cease. I accompany my mother to the stop and shop and blissfully watch the deli man slice ham. <laughs> on the ride home, I eat two pieces out of the package. The next day, I take my first Zoloft and go back to work. I pray for peace and harmony in my town. I fear anything more dramatic than a traffic stop will send me over the edge. I write stories about the replacement of municipal water pipes and the construction of a new gym at the local private school. After two weeks, the antidepressants begin to work. It's a slow loosening. My jaw, my shoulders, my gut. I'm still smoking and drinking too much coffee, but I start eating whole croissants and stop trying to throw myself down the stairs. <laughs> I write my stories in 10 hours instead of 12. By the last week, four weeks after I start the Zoloft, I'm feeling almost chipper. I even suggest an investigative piece to my editor. I have found in the police log a series of complaints about a house that purportedly has dozens of cats living in it. Neighbors are complaining about the smell, the potential health hazard, the possibility of animal cruelty. There will be a meeting on the issue in the basement of the town hall. I ask my editor, a hard-nosed local news veteran, if she thinks it's worth exploring. Dunno, she says. Could be. I go to the house and take notes. It's unremarkable except for the smell, which is putrid. I knock on the door, but no one answers. Then I go to the meeting. I arrive to find the proceedings underway. Only five people sitting around a folding table. They look up when I enter. Can I help you? Says the meeting leader, a red-haired man in an argyle sweater vest. I explain that I'm a reporter and ask if it would be okay to sit in. It's public, he says, and gestures to an empty seat at the table. I'm about to pull out a chair when another of the meeting's members, a pinched-looking middle-aged woman in a flowered dress, slams both hands on the table, glaring at me. People like you should just leave people like us alone. This isn't a crime. It's an old lady's house. What business is it to you? What business is it to anyone? I have no response. I'm not here because I was sent, but because I chose to come. I fight back tears. I realize that the only thing I want to be less than a teenage dork in a reporter's mask is an actual reporter. I mutter an apology and leave the town hall as fast as I can. On my last day, my editor requests a meeting. We sit in the war room at the conference table, where the editors argue daily about what to run on the front page. So, I know it's been a bit of a rough summer, she says, and waits. I shrug, a concession, sure, a little rough, but I don't offer more. I don't know what she knows. I don't really want to know what she thinks. I know that reporters use silence to get people to talk. She continues, but I want you to know that you're a really good writer. If you want to come back and string for us next summer, we'd be happy to have you. I tell her I will, but I know that I won't.
that's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.